At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Blessed feast day to you. What? What? what Spotify piece? wrapped. Oh. <laughs> happy happy Spotify wrapped day. Oh, mine is so embarrassing. <laughs> Do you have a top artist? Obviously Taylor Swift. Really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's good. Followed by, uh, so my number three, shout out to previous guest, J.J. Wright, the University of Notre Dame Folk Choir. Is Came up in there? Came number three. Yeah. yeah. Great episode. If you missed <laughs> yeah. it, go back and listen. But yeah, that was that was my Lent listening. It was also in my uh, top five. Uh, so happy, happy uh, feast. How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. I was down in South Carolina and it was, uh, we're going to talk about this in As One Friend Speaks to Another, but it was the first time where like my generation of cousins was mm. outnumbered by the next generation of cousins. And that was, that was over overwhelming and made over. me feel a little old. Well, you are a little old, <laughs> but we have a great show for young and old today. We sure do. We are talking to Jose Agudo. He is the executive director of Catholic Climate Covenant, which is um, a Catholic nonprofit based in the D.C. area that really tries to get people from every level of the church, from individuals to the parish to the bishops, to take concrete action um, on climate change. Yeah, we wanted to have this conversation because Pope Francis was scheduled to go to the climate meeting in Dubai, COP28, found out this week that because he his physicians had recommended it, he was recovering from flu-like symptoms, is that right? Um, they, they recommended, hey man, you got to stay home, uh, rest a little bit. So he's not going anymore, but uh, this has clearly been a, a huge initiative in Francis's papacy. So wanted to talk about uh, climate change discussions can be really just like, I don't know, paralyzing sometimes because there's like these big structural issues and political issues and but it's also very much a moral issue and a spiritual issue which pope francis has shown so we cover all of that uh jose is a really smart person and happy that he came on the show yes and he had a drink recommendation for us which you picked up yeah kind of. <laughs> i butchered so he asked us to bring on anything that supports monks uh so you had one job <laughs> yep um so i was like great chartreuse chartreuse is this great liqueur made by monks in france it's a secret recipe great um walk into my local liquor store and asked for chartreuse uh it's very hard to keep it stock because there's this limited supply there the i don't think the chartreuse monks are interested in making money because they're they don't really make more of it so it's pretty limited supply um so they're out and i was like okay do you have anything that was made by monks and uh he my friend who runs this liquor store says, oh yeah, of course. And he hands me this bottle. I buy it. Uh, great. Uh, turns out it's it's got a monk on the front of the label. It's called Monk's Secret. But as I was reading about it on the back, it looks like they're definitely not monks. They are just, no. it's a ripoff version of chartreuse. So they're just taking this like best guesstimation of the secret recipe. So, oh, I didn't realize the recipe was secret. So that's yes. why it's called Monk's Secret. Yes. Oh, okay. uh, so um, I apologize for getting you neither actual chartreuse <laughs> and nothing that supports actual monks. All right. Well, cheers anyways. Cheers. <laughs> 
So stick around for our conversation with Jose. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, we have a very exciting guest, our colleague and friend, Maggie Van Dorn, who is out with the third season of Hark. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Maggie. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be back with you guys. I was thinking about you this morning, not just because we're going to talk to you, but um, what's the weather like in North Carolina? I feel like it's unfair that you are Christmas queen and it's so warm where you live because it was frigid today coming in. Yeah, uh, I think it's pretty cold here, but that is like 40 degrees, okay. I think. for Yeah, you... Asheville's, it's kind of in the That's mountains, true. so it, it gets yeah. cold there. You get snow. We yeah. sometimes get snow. I think it is way more clement than like New England and New York. Do you miss like, one of the reasons I moved the here. fluctuation of like being absolutely frozen on your walk to the subway to being huddled up to a stranger's body heat? Um, I've actually like, like I've written about this not only in my diary but like in blog posts and stuff that I've had over the years just about like the extremes that we suffer going from the subway to the street to our apartments and it's insane. And I just have to say I feel much more like physically regulated living in. Uh, a southern climate. Well, uh, annoyed with that, but <laughs> thrilled, thrilled for you, and so excited to talk to you because you've got the new season of Hark is out, and holy cow, it's the, the first episode is an absolute banger. Uh, before we get into it, we're gonna play just the first intro because uh, when I heard it, uh, I was like, "This has to go." He was on, on the, the show. subway crying. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, stay, so this is just gonna take uh, like a minute or two. Yeah, probably three minutes. Three minutes. So stick around, uh, listen to this, and we'll be right back with Maggie Van Dorn. The following is a theatrical recreation based on old radio lore. Whether it's historical truth or mythical legend, we can never be sure. It's Christmas Eve in 1906. Morse code has been the only language of ships at sea. Dots and dashes pulsing across switchboards. And then, out of the mist and heaving waves, a voice. Good evening. This is Professor Reginald A. Fessel, speaking to you from Brant Rock, Massachusetts, at the Tower of the National. It's the first human voice broadcast over radio waves. And it belongs to Reginald Fessenden, a young Canadian professor and inventor, transmitting a Christmas greeting from Brant Rock off the coast of Massachusetts to radio operators on board ships from the North Atlantic to the Gulf of Mexico. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Fessenden is reading a passage from the Gospel of Luke announcing the birth of Christ. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Picking up his violin, Bessenden plays a familiar Christmas carol. Savior's 
birth. Long All of my earliest memories are wrapped around these kinds of carols. I always loved this one. There's something that builds to such an epic moment in it. And the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth is such a powerful thing for me. Jesus is reminding us we're made in God's image, that we are worth something more than our worst moments. The song is about liberation and justice through the Christmas message. I actually never knew that's what we were singing, but it's very evocative. Okay, I I have chills after that. When I first heard that, I was like, all right, let's go. I'm so ready for this new season of Hark, the stories behind our favorite Christmas carols. I'm really glad that it gave you chills because I think I gave myself chills just making it. I was like, gosh, this is good. Yeah, good yeah. job, self. And <laughs> you mentioned on the show that you asked for fan feedback last season. You know, like, what do, what do you guys want to hear next? And this was the top song. Why do you think that is? Ooh, um, it is a classic. It's beautiful. I now know a little bit more why it's beautiful, thanks to our guest, Colin Britt. There are some really universal themes in O Holy Night that I think appeal to people regardless of their religious identity or background. I mean, it's it's talking about themes of liberation, of shared humanity. There's this line in the third verse that says, chain shall he break, uh, for the slave is our brother. And I don't think you have to have a religious background to appreciate the sort of liberatory anti-slavery message in that line. One of the things I love about Hark is that it's both like music theory, music appreciation. It's a little history. It's also like a religious history too. Like I, it, so it turns out like Unitarians basically gave us yeah. <laughs> like all of our favorite Christmas traditions, it sounds like, or at least yeah. they have played a huge role in Oh Holy Night and some other things. Yeah, that was a surprise to me too. When I was making Hark last season, I stumbled upon this article by Daniel Williams, who we then brought on this season for Oh Holy Night. And he's a historian of American religion and politics. And in his article, which is in Christianity Today, and in his episode on Hark, he talks about how Christmas culture in America was really made by Episcopalians and Unitarians. And this just shocked me because I assumed that we had just inherited like Catholic traditions from European migrants to America and that most of our traditions go way, way, way back. Um, and of course they do, you know, there are, there are parts that endure, but so much of what we do today is really formed in 19th century New England, thanks to Unitarians and Episcopalians. Hmm. And talking about Oh Holy Night, its history, it started in France, right? Can you give us that story? Yes. So this carol started as a poem written by Placide Capot in France in the mid-19th century. Um, he was commissioned to write a poem, and then it was set to music by Adolphe Adam, who many people think was Jewish. And the combination of a possible Jewish songwriter uh, and Placide Capot, who turned out to be pretty anti-clerical and... Like anti-Catholic. Uh, anti-Catholic, right? I think, for the time. I think were sure. he alive today, um, 
he would have been critiquing things that Pope Francis is critiquing. So the combination, though, this duo, seemed to upset church authorities, and O Holy Night was banned for a solid two decades in France. That's wild. Yeah. Crazy. So couldn't sing that in, it, it was banned in Catholic In Catholic masses. churches. Yeah. I mean, obviously, people continue to sing carols in their homes. Well, I don't and... think they were really singing <laughs> vernacular songs in Catholic masses back then. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah, that that's worked. true. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the songs probably would have been in Latin. So, you yeah. know, that leaves like Adeste Fideles <laughs> and stuff. The spot where I really started to well up and just kind of lost it listening to Hark on the Subway was when you brought in former guest of this podcast, Father Greg Boyle, mm. uh, Jesuit. Um, you, ha- you have your own history yeah. with uh, Father Greg and Homeboy, right? I do. So when I was in college at Santa Clara, I took an immersion trip to East Los Angeles, and it was to Greg Boyle's uh, Homeboy Industries and Dolores Mission, and it was my first exposure to his ministry. And I was so wowed by the kind of ministry that he was modeling there, ministry of kinship, of presence, of accompaniment. And I, of course, like devoured all of the books that he wrote after that. And in one of the books, Tattoos on the Heart, there is a chapter where he actually just starts talking about Old Holy Night and how he stumbled upon an old recording in uh, his mom's attic And there was, of course, that line, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And Greg goes on to talk about how that is just so cornerstone to the ministry at Homeboy, that people know their value, their worth, that they are loved and that they are more than the worst thing that they've ever done. And and he works with formerly incarcerated people, with gang members, getting them education and work opportunities. Um, So people who that might be news to them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I just kind of presume like everyone knows (laughs) Greg Boyle because he's such a rock star, but you are right. He, you rent Homeboy is one of the largest gang reentry programs on the planet, if not the largest. Anyways, this line stuck with Greg Boyle, but it also stuck with me reading Tattoos on the Heart. And so when we were producing Oh Holy Night, I just thought we have to have Greg on the show. It might not be an obvious connection to most people to have this Catholic rock star and activist talking about a Christmas carol, but he, he himself did many, many years ago when he wrote Tattoos on the Heart. No, and it was such a good call to have him on the show. It, it the the, new, the first episode is amazing. I can't wait to hear the rest of the season. Um, you can listen to it now uh, if you're listening to this podcast. Just jump over the yeah. Hark feed. Make sure you subscribe so you get the entire season. But before we let you go, we've got uh, some some rapid fire Christmas questions. If that's all right. Okay, great. I love these. Uh, when do you start decorating for Christmas? Oh, I haven't started yet. Wow, definitely okay. after Thanksgiving. I'm I'm decorating. Uh, in my mind and heart with the production of Hark. <laughs> well, that gets to our next question. Obviously, is when do you start listening to Christmas music? And that has to be during at least the summer when you start producing Yeah, Hark. This year I did start listening in July. Yeah. July. But Christmas normally if you weren't making a Christmas oh. Carol <laughs> podcast. Yeah, thinking way back to times before Hark, I mean, again, after Thanksgiving. But I feel well, like-, like the day after Thanksgiving, because that's like when at least my like hometown radio, they start- yeah. Christmas carols the day after Thanksgiving. Well, here's the thing. Many of us travel for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a long drive or a flight, you know, you got to fill that time with something. I hope this year it's hard. But but also uh, Christmas carols, it's just a good way to usher in the season. All right. Are you pro or anti-eggnog? 
I'm anti-eggnog. Anti-eggnog. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, what are the next songs coming out this uh, season? Oh, Zach. What? You know we can't do that. Uh, w- what? <laughs> so Hark is definitely a podcast that builds on the Advent spirit of anticipation and mystery. And we We've been doing this all along where we just never reveal our set list, but this year we've decided to gamify it a bit. So if you listen to the end of every episode, you will hear a clue about next week's episode. And if you can guess next week's episode, uh, just tag us on Instagram, tag three friends, help us get word out on the show. You could win a year digital subscription to America Media. Yeah. So just go to America Media's Instagram to do that. There's a po- there, yes. there are posts where you can comment. All right. Yes. And if you already have one, which you should if you're listening to this show, a digital subscription to America, uh, you can give it away to a friend. What a great Christmas gift. Yeah. Can never have too many. All right. She is Maggie Van Doren, the host and producer of Hark, the stories behind our favorite Christmas carols. You can listen to it where you're listening to this podcast. Go, Go check that out. Download and subscribe. Maggie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me and thanks for listening. All right. Now stick around for our conversation with Jose Agudo. Joining us from Alexandria, Virginia, is Jose Agudo. Jose is the executive director of Catholic Climate Covenant. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jose. Thank you. It's a blessing to be with you both. So really excited for this conversation. Um, We're going to get into a lot of stuff um, from the political to the structural to the personal to the spiritual and how it relates to uh, our climate, our common home. But want to start first focusing on this upcoming meeting in Dubai, COP28. Um, we just got breaking news uh, just before we were recording this that Pope Francis is unfortunately not going to be able to travel to the COP28 conference. Um, his doctors have recommended that he stay back. But as of now, it sounds like he's going to be addressing the gathering remotely. This would have been you know, the first time that a pope addressed um, a COP conference uh, is, is someone who works in the climate space, in the Catholic climate space, um, what is Francis's involvement uh, going forward and in the past? Like, wh- how important is that? For the climate movement, it's incredibly important. He has demonstrated his commitment from the very beginning, uh, launching in 2015 his encyclical Laudato Si with regards to care for our common home, and has been increasing his uh, participation and the intensity uh, of his commitment. Again, as you noted, trying to get to COP28 and was, in fact, recently taking uh, antibiotics intravenously, hoping to be able to attend. Yeah, it seems like he was he was really like he wanted to be there. Very much wanted to be there. And in line with what he recently uh, published, the Dato Deum of Apostolic Exhortation, calling for us to really step into what he calls now the climate crisis. So we in the Catholic community are so heartened by him lifting up uh, the moral call for climate action. Yeah, and Pope Francis wasn't going to be the only religious leader at this meeting. This was going to be the first time where there was a faith pavilion at cop at a cop meeting where um, people who are working on this on the ground and leaders in the inner religious space were going to be there. So I'm wondering what you think the role of specifically religious leaders in something like cop that these like high level meetings that are supposed to make impositions on governments and economies like what what's a pope or an imam doing there 
You're right. Negotiations are very highly technical. Uh, they deal with a, a plethora of issues. But I would say fundamentally, why the faith voice is coming in is a request for a change in values, um, for a call for all of our leaders to focus on the common good and to really delve into what it means to be a leader uh, of their nations and of, of all people, recognizing the gravity of the climate crisis and that we need to do something about it on a collective level and a change away from self-interest and working for a better future for all. I feel like we kind of have this conversation or a similar conversation where we're talking about the Pope's role in like peace negotiations. Oftentimes it's like, well, the Pope is sort of like, he's got no authority. Yeah, he's got no (laughs) army. He's got like not a huge government. He is a head of state. Um, Do you have any sense that like Francis's advocacy and involvement in the climate movement has had any kind of political effect or do you think that's a little too hard to measure? It is a soft power. So in that manner, it's it's very difficult to, to measure. I, I would say though, that he gives a credibility uh, to the movement across the board. Uh, I recall when he, for example, issued Laudato see how many people, my peers in the environmental community were absolutely elated and other people in the, in the faith community elated that, you know, uh, uh, this faith is lifting up a very explicit call for climate action, um, is a an inspiration. It literally moves the needle of the moral compass towards us doing something about it. So, And what are you hoping for for COP28? Do you have any specific uh things you'd like to see come out of this meeting. It's, it's, I know it's hard to say we're on 28. It's like, oh, what do I want this 28th time that I didn't get the first 27 times? And, and maybe could you just give like an, like, what is a cop uh, meeting? Like for someone who's listening and it's like, oh, I didn't know there were, I didn't, we're on 28. I didn't watch seasons one through 27. What happened? <laughs> right. right. And uh, hopefully it's not a soap opera. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so a conference of the parties is the annual meeting of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, in which over 190 nations gather um, to try to come to agreement on collective global action on climate change. Um, And in 2015, uh, at the Paris COP21, they did come to an agreement to work on measurable steps to take to collectively reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And right now in COP28, uh, there is an effort to do what's called, pardon the wonkiness, a global stock take on what uh, what have been the nation's collective efforts and individual efforts to, to take those actions. So like a report card for people? <laughs> yes, okay. report card. Thank you. And and what's your sense of what, what grades, you know, like the United States going to get? <laughs> I think relative to other nations, a fairly decent score. The United States have been reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, um, which in and of itself is significant. Uh, We're not doing so fast enough. I think relative to other nations, we're doing a fairly good job. So, um, yeah, hopeful. I was struck in Laudate Deum how... Uh, how blunt the Pope was about sort of assessing these conferences or, or these meetings. It was like, oh, 2015 was good, but yeah, 19, not so great. 21, that was all, that was not so great. That was a disappointment. It was fascinating to see him kind of evaluate. One of the things he kept harping on was there was no like the, the 2015 Paris Accords were, you know, super important or the Paris Agreement was super important, but there was no mechanism for evaluating or enforcing. And, and, and is that what's trying to be constructed in this meeting in Dubai coming up? 
I would say that's what the Pope would like to see, and he said specifically in Laudate Deum um, that they be obligatory actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's not the way the Paris Agreement is currently constructed, and, and that's one of the frustrations. And, and if you read a lot of the uh, materials and articles coming forth prior to COP, we're recognizing that even those voluntary uh, targets are not being met. So it's a sobering context to be coming into, to be honest with you. So you, you've mentioned so far both Laudato Si, which came out in 2015 before the Paris meeting um, and the Paris agreement, um, and then Laudate Deum, which came out um, last month in October ahead of this Dubai meeting. So I'm wondering, why do you think Pope Francis felt the need to give an update to Laudato Si? It's a bit shorter, but it's still a, a apostolic exhortation focused on the environment. Um, and what, what does it change from 2015? I just want to chime in with an opinion. Uh, I, I, I loved how short Laudate Deum was. Um, I would like that to be a standard going forward for papal communications. Um, I mean, it's still hefty. There's a lot in there. But um, if maybe if you're listening and you were nerd, like you've, you've always wanted to read Laudato Si, but you didn't have time, like Laudato, Laudate Deum, it's a little bit shorter. It's a little more to the point. Packs a, packs a big punch. He says explicitly, and why he wrote Laudate Deum is he said, yet with the passage of time, I have realized that our responses have not been adequate since he uh, issued Laudato Si, and says, while the world in which we, we live is collapsing and may be nearing the breaking point. Um, so, I mean, to use the words, you know, we're, we're potentially on the brink of collapsing is very strong language. Uh, and he also uses the phrase climate crisis. And that's so, new? He hadn't used that phrase specifically before? That's correct. And you asked earlier, like, what do we hope for coming out of this COP? Um, recognizing that from uh, you know from from many of these measurable inputs that we're not going to meet the targets that even the uh, the last the COP twenty one hoped to to meet, which is keeping uh, global temperatures beyond one point five under one point five degrees Celsius, that we need a change in behavior, that we need a change in values, that we have our leaders as he would say, exercising the noblest dimensions of politics to do for the globe, to recognize the common good and to really step beyond, you know, more limited, selfish economic and political interests for the good of the world. And that's where we are. And that's why he wanted to go. My kind of gut reaction when this came out was kind of, I don't know. I mean, I'm used to the UN and the scientific community coming out with these reports every six months saying the end of the world is near, we, we're running out of time, all this stuff. And, you know, you kind of want to have something a little bit more hopeful coming from the Pope. <laughs> and so to have Pope Francis sound so dire um, and almost apocalyptic, I was like, oh, gosh, <laughs> how do I keep from despairing now? Yes, it, that's, that is really the question that many of us in the climate community and environmental community, I mean, we face every day. Uh, and one of the reasons why I, I, well, the main reason why I joined, if you will, the faith dimension of, of, of climate action is because I believe that our faiths give us strength to carry on in the most dire of circumstances. And also because, you know, our faith tells us that with God, nothing is impossible. And we could see a change in the way leaders are acting and the way people are responding to the climate crisis in a matter that literally flips the script, um, both what's on paper, what's in our atmosphere, what's in the scientific evidence, and also in our hearts. 
and our faiths consistently call us to have a change of heart. And this is the moral and spiritual dimension which we, the faith community, you know, should be taking up and really imploring on a face-to-face -face level with those in power, you know, please really do for the common good and not simply for political or economic ambitions. I'm curious if there's a moment where you yourself were either like experienced a moment of conversion in your relationship to the climate, or maybe there was a, a moment where you were able to kind of integrate your faith into your climate action in a way that you're talking about. Is, was that a process for you? Or is there a moment you can point to where th that all kind of started to click? Yes, actually, there's several moments. Um, one of the pivotal moments was when I was uh, working for uh, the National Congress of American Indians on behalf of Indian tribes. And as many of you may know, they are some of the most impacted communities in the United States as it relates to climate impacts. Um, so for example, when the salmon stop flowing upstream, um, there is disruption, not just in um, their one of their major food sources, but in their culture, in their spirituality, in their society, in the ways um, people view the providers because you know, the salmon have disappeared or, or are much, much more reduced. And so wanting to take that multidimensional tragedy into Congress and say, look, these are the things that are happening, you know, from a moral basis, you know, please, you know, really work with these tribes and address climate change, you know, for their sake, because the damage has been so obvious. Um, that was not a message that when I was lobbying Congress that they were taking. And so the lack of response to the tangible harm caused in, if you will, sort of a spiritual crisis. And I saw within the message of climate action, there wasn't a, an explicit call from a moral perspective. And that's why when I decided to work in the faith community and really lift up this dimension of, of what you would call climate advocacy. That leads to something I wanted to ask you. Um, so you're called Catholic Climate Covenant, which is I've heard I've heard it so many times that I kind of just got used to it, but that's kind of a weird name for a nonprofit. Um, you know, you can imagine like the Catholic Climate Initiative or the Catholic Climate Project, but Covenant is very <laughs> religiously charged language. So I'm wondering why that word and what that infuses into your work. Uh, I that I was not. I know that was before in, your time. <laughs> it was before my time, um, but I yeah. I you probably would have chosen well. something that has better SEO. <laughs> <laughs> Easier to roll off the tongue. Yeah, I love a, I love alliteration for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would say from my perspective, and you can definitely ask Dan, uh, the founder, that the word covenant embraces a stronger connection, a very, if you will, sacred connection um, to climate, to our earth. Um, it's kind of a triad. In fact, I was talking to Dan today and he said, you know, the triad is, you know, God, our creator, um, our neighbors and our earth. And that is that third connection and, you know, uh, sort of enshrined in the word covenant. How does that, in your day-to-day, -day, how do you try to bring that dimension into it? I, I, like, I don't know, because we've, we've all worked at or worked with nonprofits and, you know, it's a lot of emails and, <laughs> and interviews with people like us. But how do you, how do you keep that, that idea of a covenant in, in the day-to-day? We start uh, from the fundamentals of, oh, at least I feel the fundamentals of our Catholic faith, which, you know, first is love of God and love of neighbor. And we serve love of neighbor by, by protecting our earth. Um, in a way, it's, and 
Pope Francis and the other popes have been very clear about this. It's about uplifting the human dignity, uh, the dignity of every single person. And if we are providing them with a degraded environment, we are not respecting that dignity. Um, so we start from that premise. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a hard time integrating this into my own personal life. I feel like with climate change, like a lot of the biggest levers we can pull are on a very structural level, right? Um, There are changes that we need to make uh, multilaterally, as the Pope says, uh, organized with people around the world because this is a common problem. But I do feel like there is um, a spiritual element that can be hard to tap into that uh, requires like conversion on on my end that I have to do things differently, especially someone living in the United States. How do you keep that sort of front and center while you're focused on advocating for the structural changes that need to happen? But this is also very much a, a spiritual issue as well. It's both end. Uh, but as Pope Francis recognizes or stated in the Laudate Dam, that the systemic will be more impactful than the individual. Uh, and that, but what we do individually is also important because then we create a culture by which this, you know, this this sense of obligation also then transfers into movements on the systemic level. I think that we do have a role to play with regard to these systemic changes. It's very difficult for us to envision what we can do when those levers are primarily pulled by, you know, some of our temporal leaders. Um, but there are ways that we can we can participate in that manner, um, both on the advocacy level as well as the practical level, um, based on the fundamental premise that one of the best antidotes to despair is action. So you know, find your find your place, find your gift where you are, and employ that, whether it be on the individual level, to the advocacy level, and everything in between. I have to say, I was, I'm was i like part of the generation where we were like taught, like, if you just recycle, the earth will be great. And that's all you have to do. So I'm wondering, and then you like go to college or graduate and you find out like half the things you recycle end up in a landfill anyway. And so you're like, ah, what was the point? So it can be very easy to lose hope and like throw up your hands, but you don't seem like the type of person who's who's doing that. So like, how do you how do you keep up? hope on a like personal spiritual basis 
I pray a lot more. <laughs> I do, honestly. My uh, faith has been a, a strength uh, living into this, and I've grown into my faith uh, because of the fundamental challenges and disappointments like the one that you just mentioned about recycling and all of the systemic challenges that we face. And feeling blessed in a way to be able to create opportunities um, and to step into this. So, you know, in one hand, we we do need we do need actions that are urgent and dramatic to prevent the climate crisis. At the same time, we need to lift up people at the human pace, at the pace that is necessary for this to really, uh, for people to really feel within themselves and embrace, to then come forth and be actors, protagonists of change in a very spiritual as well as practical way. So for example, we at The Covenant, we have a program called Holdmakers, which over 600 institutions have downloaded, like campus ministers, young adult ministries, uh, and others, to then live into um, a curriculum where you are starting to understand how how our, our planet and our ecological systems are fully part of who we are and fully a part of our faith. Uh, we also allow, for example, high schoolers. Uh, we gather them together and uh, in now in three dioceses where, for example, in Archdiocese of Chicago, we've got 12 Catholic high schools coming together to put together a summit. Um, but in the p- putting together of that summit all throughout the year, they're meeting as a leadership council. They're engaging in these actions with their schools and with their parishes that then leads up to, yes, I can do something. Yes, I am an agent of change. So we want to be able to lift up those needs from the ground up so that people are feeling not just hopeful, but knowing that they can be part of the solution. That gets to one thing I wanted to ask about in terms of how um, the climate change message is communicated. You you talk about how there's a need to lift up the moral dimension of of the climate crisis, but I feel like a lot of the way it's received by just normal people is like very moralizing. Um, you have these people going on their airplanes to fancy conferences, lecturing people about how they need to get get rid of their truck and get an electric vehicle, and it's just like people are like, "What? Why are you preaching to me? My carbon footprint's smaller than yours." And so I want. I'm wondering if you could pick out the difference between like lifting up the moral dimension and being overly moralistic in the way that you communicate about climate change? There have been, um, you know, accusations that, you know, the environmental movement can be moralizing and technocratic. I feel like we are doing the best that we can. And and it's very difficult to, when you see facts, to, to immediately say, well, this is the solution and everyone should be engaging in the solution. Um, there is a degree of humility that uh, many of us in the climate space are now bringing uh, and and very hard searching on how we reach out to others to not be moralizing about this and saying, for example, as you know, the USCCB has been saying and, and others that care for creation is integrally related to um, our care for each other. Um, and so if we go with that sense of the common good and also the sense that uh, we are also part of the problem, then we can walk together with others in that shared humility and moving forward. Um, 
that's one of the things that I've learned because you're right. I mean, I, you know, so much of what we do, you know, like flying to Dubai for a climate conference and having a huge carbon footprint is like, wait, most of us, the vast majority of us are caught in this system where, as Pope Francis said in Laudate Deum, 80% of all the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. There's no way that most of us, if not all of us, can avoid that dependence. Uh, and so if we operate from that humility and that you know vulnerability that we are still part of the problem and walk with others and say, okay, let's walk together on the incremental and systemic ways that we can move away from fossil fuels, let's do that. I want to shift a little bit to the U.S. church um, because we know from surveys that uh, broadly speaking, Catholics aren't any more likely to take climate change seriously than the average American. It, it, it seems like it splits um, basically along partisan lines. I'm curious, the Catholic Climate Covenant seems committed to being nonpartisan. Um, why is that important and how, how do you do that? We start, and we learn this um, the hard way, um, that we start from the foundation of our faith. It, but it is important and it is universal uh, within our church to to really love God and to love neighbor. To And in and, and doing so, uh, you are respecting, just as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, we are all in, in our own ways um, weak and sinful. And if we start from that place of all that we do is all to be for the glory of God and what we need to do is listen to and move forward with what God wills for us, that then we are moving together, you know, fully recognizing the divisiveness within our church, which is, you know, in many ways mirroring what's going on in our politics, uh, in our communities, sometimes in our families. As Pope Francis says, his first request in Laudato Si is, let us start with a dialogue. We need to listen to one another. And listening is fundamentally an act of humility. Um, so I feel very blessed to be living in this Catholic space and to draw on the fundamentals of our faith in order to then talk about these conversions and overcome some of these fundamental barriers that we're seeing in society. What we are some of the send our politics? What are some of the most so. like common resistances that you get from Catholics in particular when you, you might be engaging them? Or do they not even like come in the door? Like they see a Catholic climate and they're like, that's not really for me. Uh, I'd say one of the fundamental challenges is, and you've probably seen this as well in America, that the identity that most people associate with most strongly is their politics and not their faith. Uh, and so we, I feel like we need to be asking people to focus on their faith first. Um, because if you're talking about politics, and as you mentioned, they're not even coming into the door. They're automatically uh, skeptical. But if we can come into a conversation where we all agree that every life is sacred from conception to natural death, and what do we need to do across that spectrum to protect it, then we can have a conversation. Um, then we can be grounded in our Catholic faith uh, and love we start with love, then let's move forward. Because any so many of these other conversations are already preconditioned to fail. 
We've talked about a lot about what's going wrong or not going on at all in terms of climate action. I'm, I want to point to some bright spots. So I'm wondering in the uh, U.S. church context, if you could point to anything that's being done, whether at the parish level or by religious uh, orders or anywhere else in the U.S. Catholic Church, um, creative ways of responding to climate change. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, the the sisters, the women religious, have always been fantastic. no surprise. No surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just check that box right away. God bless them. Um, yeah. Powerful, powerful moral voices uh, in, in word, deed, and action, literally putting themselves on the front lines. More of the, you know, the edge. We are seeing an increase in interest by dioceses uh, and the bishops to figure out how they can live into Laudato Si. We have, for example, over 30 dioceses that are participating in our interdiocesan network on how do you live out Laudato Si and what's called the action platform, which is something that the Vatican lifted up a couple years ago. For example, a diocese submits what we will do, we will do recycling, we will, you know, we will do curriculum development and things like that. One of the dioceses, for example, the Diocese of Davenport commits to going to net zero by 20, I think 2040 or 2050. So making their, uh, their facilities more energy efficient, encouraging you know the parishes under it to continue to do so um, these are the kinds of tangible actions we're seeing on the systemic level that we're trying to get other dioceses to embrace um, so it's really putting theory into practice on the levels where you may not imagine from the bishops indeed we're seeing heightened interest it's interesting so. because even i was looking up the history of catholic climate covenant and it comes out of this U.S. bishops U.S. bishops letter that comes out in 2001, um, and I don't, that struck me because I mean, for context, uh, my first experience with climate change or encountering climate change was Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth documentary that I like watched in science class in in middle school or something. So, and that comes out in 2006, right? So, uh, U.S. Catholic Church is actually on this um, even earlier. Um, I think a lot of people think this is a Pope Francis issue. But it really, it seems like we have a long tradition in our church uh, caring about this kind of thing. Absolutely. And Pope Francis sort of anticipated your question, um, because in Laudato Si, his very first paragraphs are about how uh, his predecessors, even Pope Paul VI, was talking about the impending environmental catastrophe due to our consumption patterns. And these are value sets that the church has held for quite a while, like excessive consumerism, runaway capitalism, you know, that and f not attending to the, the, the needs of the poor and the consequences that are borne by them because of these deleterious practices. Uh, but concept is different from deed. And so stepping into this is a much more complicated affair. You know, we think about bishops and the 20 to 50 major priorities that they have and where does climate action or ecological, you know, matters, you know, slot into that list. You know, it, it doesn't come in very high in many in many dioceses, but what we're seeing is it's starting to move up. I feel like uh, it's all hard to go from theory to practice. I'm pretty sure that's what uh, the disciples said when they heard the Beatitudes the first time too. So, <laughs> you know, long tradition of that. Uh 
Jose, I want to thank you so much. Uh, maybe maybe before we ask our last question, uh, you got a young Catholic listening to this. Uh, they want to they want to get more involved. Maybe they want to be more uh, converted. They want to engage this this deep well of Catholic ecological thought. Like, uh, where should they start? First, start with prayer. That was that's a better answer than go to Catholic Climate Covenant's website. <laughs> right, I, was, I, I set I it up. For, start, I set I it up for you. Say, <laughs> but no, starting with prayer. I, Oh, did I mention to you that today's Giving Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. No, actually prayer, yes. And, you know, how many studies have talked about going outside and spending time outside? Absolutely. I know these sound very pedantic, but they are really transformational. They really are. Pray outside. Quiet yourself, honestly. Uh, and, and believe that any small action will make a difference. Because, again, the antidote to despair is action. Pope Francis said in Laudate Deum, any action, any tenth of a degree of reduction will mean so much to future generations. So, you know, believe that you can do this, that you are protagonists of change. And listen to your heart. As I mentioned earlier, we have so many young adults and youth, as all youth, whether Catholic or non-Catholic, who say, you know, climate change is a preeminent issue for me moving forward. We are, through our programming, our youth and young adult programming, are providing them opportunities to live into that charism in a manner that is consistent with their faith and draws upon the strength of our Catholic faith. So I would tell you actually to go to our website and look at our youth and young adult programs. Uh, our, we have two wonderful champions, Kayla Jacobs and Diana Marin, who really help people step into this. It's a good place to end before we get to our last question, which we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I would canonize Pope Francis. It's a very popular choice on the show. <laughs> all right. Tell okay. us why. Tell us why, though. Uh, he lives the gospel. He is a pastoral pope. He is authentic in his care for our most vulnerable peoples. Um, he truly lifts up the dignity of every single human person and wants us all to live into that. Just wonderful, in my estimation, a saintly person. Well, we'll keep him in our prayers, especially uh, as he's recovering from an illness, which is, I know it's hurting him to not be able to go to the COP28 conference, but uh, I know he'll be watching. So our prayers are with Pope Francis. Jose, thank you so much. Um, we're going to link to Catholic Climate Covenant in our show notes, obviously. But anything else you want to plug right now? No, I'm just blessed to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley, really. Thank you. I'm going to go outside. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. I want to start with a thank you. I know that many people who listen to the show were very generous to America Media on Giving Tuesday, um, which supports us. It's the, it, America obviously produces Jesuitical. Ashley and I work at America. We couldn't do it without people that support America, either by reading it, subscribing to it, donating to it. So that was you. Thank you so much. And there's still time. You can still give. Um 
related to that, we do want to shout out some uh, new Patreon supporters this week. A couple people joined in the last few weeks since we last read names. So I want to give a shout out to Lisa, Sean Connor, Bernard J. Costello, and Eileen Sleva. Thank you so much. And one of the benefits of being a Patreon member is you get bonus episodes. And we have one coming out uh, that's it's it's in the news right now. So this woman, uh, pop star Sabrina Carpenter, I'm old, so I'd never heard of her before until she filmed a, a music video in a church in a Catholic church in Brooklyn. And it caused quite the controversy. So we brought on some of the O'Hare fellows here at American Media, Michael O'Brien and Christine Lenahan, who did some reporting on this story. Uh, Christine, from the perspective of how pop culture has appropriated Catholicism in the past, and Michael about how um, people like Sabrina Carpenter get access to Catholic spaces to record their music videos and films. So if you want to listen to that bonus episode, you can sign up to be a Patreon member at patreon.com slash Media. And then one last thing. So we mentioned earlier this season that we wanted to get on the road some this year. All roads lead to Rome. So we had to go start there first. But we've gotten some great interest from people all around the country. And so we've got some things in the works. So stay tuned. Uh, 2024, we're looking to uh, take the show on the road a little bit. So we'll be announcing um, dates and locations very soon. So stay tuned. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this past week, I, of course, found God in Thanksgiving. (laughs) Naturally. Yes. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I was down uh, with my family in South Carolina, and there were a lot of kids, a lot of kids under the age of of seven. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, as a single woman in my 30s, I was on full aunt duty, not only with my siblings, kids. So I have three nephews and one niece who are ages six months to almost four. So lots to do there. Oh yeah. <laughs> but then on top of that, all the all my cousins' kids too. And it was just such a, a different experience than my normal life living in a studio by myself in New York. Like I, I had this like very real experience of like, my life is not my own right now. Like my my food is not my own. My the remote controller is not my own. I'm gonna watch the Minions movie seven times because that's what my niece wants to watch. Um, and but it was it was. Does I that get it, better after each watch or it, worse? The Minions like movie a, is actually hilarious. Does it peak at watch five and then you know? Is it, I don't know. I didn't returns? get sick of it. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's great for little kids because you don't actually have to understand English to enjoy the movie because mm. they don't speak English. But anyways, the point is I had this experience of nothing being my own, but it being like a very like invigorating, life-giving experience to like not just be focused on my own concerns and worries. Um, and so then I came back to New York and I was like, huh. I feel like something's missing. Like I had all, I, I, I felt needed. I had obligations. I was, you know, just constantly giving of myself to others. And it made me think of like, oh, how can I structure my life as a single woman in my 30s back in New York that I, I have something that's similar to that where I, ha- I have all this freedom as as a single person and how do I structure my life so that it's not just like I use that freedom for selfish goals and, and or maybe not even selfish but yeah, just things just that... like yeah just like being listless and like uh, mm-hmm. I, it, like it's it's nice to feel needed and so why why is god telling me that <laughs> i need it's nice to feel needed and it's like it is because you know if you have freedom 
you can have freedom from things or you can have freedom for being open to relationships and obligations that build those relationships. Um, you know, I love hear, like listening because I think other people would have um, gone through this, got back to their studio apartment and just like collapsed of exhaustion <laughs> and been like, thank God that was over. Um, so it sounds like something's really, the wheels are turning. Yeah. Um, there's always been kids uh, at my Thanksgiving. There, there's just like a regular replenishing supply of small children <laughs> at my grandma and grandpa's and uh i won't lie toddlers are the one thing that really scare mm -hmm. me about parenthood I, I i see like people my age now that have toddlers and they're they just look dead in the eyes like they've been like in a war for like they're battling just toddlers. put on the minions movie just put on the minions movie <laughs> that's what you gotta do it um no but like obligations and what are they i mean i felt that in a real way like once i got married it was like oh there's this other person that like i'm you know obligated to and i i have to maintain some sense of freedom to support them and obviously that builds as the as the family builds but it's not the only place where you can find that yeah no so i back in new york i am thinking about you know millennials get this rap for like all we want to do is cancel plans. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. It's like, uh, the best text you can ever get is like, ah, sorry, got to cancel. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I really want to push back against that mindset in my life back here and use the freedom I do have to be available for the people in my life here and and people, all you know, my friends that are not here and just support them in the way that I can. Um, I do have a running list of like backyard chores that I need to get done. Are you interested? <laughs> no, obligations to people, not to not to leaves. I guess you are a person. I am a person. <laughs> and I, and the, the leaves aren't going to rake themselves. <laughs> okay. All right. So listeners, think about how you use your freedom. Like, is it, are you, is it freedom to get away from relationships or are there places where you could maybe um, use that freedom to um, be more open and supportive to the people in your lives? So with that, I will get us out of here. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation is provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.